Good afternoon. My name is Shafali Luthra, and on behalf of the Texas Tribune, welcome to the sixth annual Tribune Festival and to the Texas and Zika panel. The panel supported by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas and Quest Diagnostics, but you can rest assured they've played no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or questioning. And I'm pretty sure I would know. <laughs> a bit about me, I'm a reporter with Kaiser Health News in Washington, DC. We are a nonprofit, editorially independent project funded by the Kaiser Family Foundation. And since I'm sure some of you are wondering, we have no relationship with Kaiser Permanente. You can find our stories in outlets like NPR, The Washington Post, USA Today, and CNN. And since you're clearly here, you're interested in health. So you should also sign up for our daily newsletter, which is a comprehensive roundup of the day's top health policy stories. You can find all that at khn.org. But now onto the main event. We have here a great set of panelists who are going to help us walk through the political and policy implications of Zika, assess how real of a threat it poses, think about questions it raises around Texans' access to quality healthcare and all those other fun issues. So on the other end, we have Dr. Martha Rack, a maternal fetal medicine specialist at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. She's been working to help connect at-risk women with resources like testing and regular screenings. She's helped launch a Zika center at Texas Children's and is researching better testing mechanisms and how the Zika virus develops in pregnant women. Next to Martha is Nicole Collier, a Democratic member of the Texas House of Representatives from Fort Worth, who sits on the House's Public Health Committee. So she's among the representatives who oversees organizations like the Texas Department of State Health Services, and she's worked to help expand Medicaid to cover insect repellent for women who are between the ages of 10 and 45 or pregnant, women at risk for Zika complications. She's also pushing for more education and funding to better combat the virus. Then we have Dr. Ann Barnes, the Chief Medical Officer of Legacy Community Health Services, a federally qualified health center in Houston that treats many of the area's low-income residents who we know are expected to be particularly vulnerable if Zika becomes actively transmitted here in Texas. Legacy has been actively screening patients for Zika and providing pregnant women with Zika prevention packs. And so far we've seen six patients who have tested positively for the virus. 10 now. 10 now, oh wow. And then last but not least, we have Dr. John Hellerstedt, the commissioner for the state health department. He's been a key player in organizing the state's health response to Zika, including areas like awareness campaigns, access to testing, travel alerts, and surveillance. And by training, he's a pediatrician. So this is going to be a free-flowing conversation over the next hour, and we'll have 20 minutes at the end for audience questions. There are microphones over there and over there. So think about what kind of questions you want to ask at the end. And please remember to make sure there is actually a question in there. Um, last, please remember to silence your phones, uh, but don't turn them off. We'd love to have you tweet along. The hashtag is hashtag TTF, which I'm sure you've guessed stands for Texas Tribune Festival. Um, and with that, let's get started. Okay. So, Given sort of the complexity of the issue of Zika, it seems logical to start with the most obvious question. We have, right, the number of cases climbing nationally every day, active transmission in Florida. Some are saying perhaps transmission's underway in Texas here, and we don't know it yet. How big of a concern is this? How worried should we be, um, both in Texas and nationally, about what the virus could mean here? Um, maybe, Dr. Rack, you'd want to sure, start? Sure, yeah, I can take that question. Um, I think we should be concerned. I mean. 
Uh, if you look at the distribution of uh, the uh, pandemic as we currently know it, as well as the conditions that promote spread of the pandemic, we, we're a perfect setup here in Texas. We have the um, we have the mosquito, we have the climate, we have the patient population. We're an international travel hub. All of the um, uh, number of cases in the United States follow major international travel hubs, so I think that we should be concerned. Uh, but you know, we have, I have very good faith in our public health department to combat the combat the virus. So, what are the things the state should be doing? Maybe the three most effective courses of action to sort of undermine the threat before it really takes off. And any of you can answer that one. Well, I was going to. Uh, I was I'll start by saying that I think that we're already doing some of the things that we need to be doing, and, and that's education. We need to educate the public on how it's transmitted and how to protect yourself from uh, getting the, the virus, you know, by wearing uh, insect repellent, using contraception, uh, also making sure that we remove standing water. That's another place where the, the mosquitoes breed. Uh, so those are the things that, you know, educating, communicating with the public and providing the mosquito repellent mm -hmm. uh, to those who are uh, under the Medicaid umbrella. So that, those are the things that we have done. Dr. Stella, Hellerstad, have I missed anything that you've done? Uh, no, I, I think that's a really good summary. And, and I, I would just sort of want to emphasize one of the ironies, if you will, about Zika is that if it comes here through a local vector, mosquito vector transmission, we have certain things that we can do, countermeasures, if you will, uh, denying breeding habitats, using larvicide, spraying for adults, wearing deep, wearing protective clothing, uh, all of those sort of things, creating any kind of barrier between the bite and, and the human being. We can do those things when it gets here. We should be doing them now. We should be doing them before they get here. So one of my th th things I'm really enthusiastic about is insect repellent. One of the things that happened in Miami, once we ha they had an outbreak there, they were jokingly saying that insect repellent had become the new perfume. Mm -hmm. Well, if we could start that here, that would be a major step forward. And the thing to remember, again, about the basic biology of it is it's not just about pregnant women or women of childbearing age wearing insect repellent. It's about everybody using it. And people will ask me, well, I'm going to the beach that I put on insect repellent. If you're stepping outside of your house, you should put on insect repellent, especially if you're stepping outside of your house to go do some gardening or do a barbecue in your backyard because that's where the mosquito lives in, in, in very close proximity with people. So yes, um, there are in fact, we have public health assets. All, both the county, city, and state health departments uh, have uh, experts in zoonosis, in other words, human to uh, animal disease transmission, etymologists, uh, epidemiologists who can investigate, infectious disease specialists, um, data crunchers, um, people who can go out and knock on doors and, and provide information. So much of what we have in place is what we do every day for all sorts of public health problems, and we can adapt those uh, to the fight against Zika. I think um, as uh, frontline mm -hmm. uh, primary caregivers um, in Houston, we see about 300 pregnant women a day. Mm -hmm. um, and so we know it's our responsibility, patient by patient, to talk about Zika and also to educate on how to prevent it. But we recognize when we're talking to women that many of them have heard about Zika, but there's still some really basic information that you've all alluded to about covering up, wearing inset repellent, um, eliminating standing water in the community um, that I think could really happen at a very large public health um, way. And that would supplement what we do in the clinic uh, patient by patient. 
we actually gave away uh, prevention packs, and I think yeah. you mentioned that in the introduction. Um, 2,000 at the beginning of the summer, that was mosquito repellent and condoms, and then we purchased another 2,000, which we're also giving to patients. So um, we recognize that we can do it one at a time, but it's certainly much more effective when the whole community is engaged. A question like clearing standing water, for instance, gets at something else like that takes time, it takes money and resources, right? And I mean, nationally, there's Congress, which maybe they'll allocate money towards Zika prevention. Who really knows? Um, the state legislature is obviously not in session yet. Um, to what extent is that question of funds constraining what can or can't be done to address Zika right now? Well, right now we're, we're able to address mm -hmm. Zika um, and what, what the conditions are here in Texas. So we're, we're not at that point where we mm -hmm. need to be concerned about you know, the limited funds that we do have. But I do have a concern for our county hospitals because a lot of the um, requirements and, and, and the processes have been, placed down, has been, have been pushed down to our county hospitals. So they're having to pick up a lot of the slack on, on um, doing that educating and, and issuing uh, the mosquito repellent and so forth and, and responding to people in the testing. So I am concerned about the, the amount of money that our counties will have to, um, you know, dish out to do those testings. And uh, the state needs to step up and, and help them if they request aid. And that's part of the Zika plan mm -hmm. that the governor pulled out. The, the governor said in his plan that the counties can request money, and I encourage each county to do that if it comes to that. Is there any concern right now? Have counties been expressing worry about whether they have enough funding to sort of address what their need is at the moment? Or I have not been notified, and I don't know about with your clinic or with your hospital. Um, I can only attest to what we see in, our, in terms of volume in our clinic, and it mm -hmm. is increasing, and we anticipate that it will increase. And then, you know, the winter's coming, but it's only winter north of, of the equator. So, um, <laughs> and obviously, if you live in Texas, we don't have much of a winter. So with that being said, we don't really um, anticipate much of a lull in, in terms of volume. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is something that we're dealing, on a, dealing with on a daily basis, testing volume. Um, feasibility of testing, you know, compensation is going to become an issue um, soon in terms of um, how many people are getting tested. I mean, if it becomes local transmission here in Texas, it will become, you know, a new OB lab in a sense, just like you check, you know, um, you know, RPR, rubella, anything mm -hmm. on, on all your pregnant ladies, it's going to become standard of care. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely a concern. Anecdotally, right, you do hear also that access to testing isn't as robust as one would like, that often it's slow to get things processed, they have to go back to the CDC. To what extent is that sort of a... Yeah, and, and that's a great question. Um, you know, we're, we're exploring other avenues for expanded testing options to combat mm -hmm. that, either in commercial laboratories or within our own institution. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that, that is somewhat uh, of uh, what we've been dealing with, yeah. Well, I think that's fine for uh, Harris County, but when you talk about somebody in McAllen, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be an issue for yeah. testing. So, you know, a woman in, in, Harris, uh, in McAllen, in the Valley area, it's going to be hard for them to get access access to those, the, the, those types of uh, facilities that could provide the, the uh, testing that they need. And then if they test positive, getting them back and forth to the clinic or to the medical professional is going to be a problem. So I think that we really do need to take a look at the areas where the rural areas, especially in the valley, uh, where the women do not have access to quality care. And what are some of the solutions there? Or well, that, some of the <laughs> solutions are making sure that we have facilities there that will provide that care, making sure that their hospitals are, are qualified and, and ready and, and mm -hmm. uh, to take on 
um, those, those types of patients, but we really need to get more professionals out there. We need to get more uh, doctors and nurses out there into the Valley area so that they can be prepared and to take on those, those types of cases. Because if it's happening in Dallas and Tarrant County and Harris County, it's happening there. The other question that I think is really interesting, and all of you sort of alluded to the emphasis on prevention and education, you know, encouraging women and men to cover up, wear repellent. But when you talk to a lot of doctors, especially those who work at, you know, federally qualified health centers, they seem to suggest that many patients aren't as concerned as maybe they should be. And I'm wondering to what extent is there a challenge around education? How do you make sure that patients are actually being proactive? Um, are there resources in place or strategies? In, if not, is that sort of another factor to be considered? Well, I think that the patients that we see in care certainly value the information that their mm -hmm. provider gives. And, and when a pregnancy and a healthy pregnancy yeah. outcome um, is at issue, um, mm -hmm. women really do want to be compliant. Um, I think that the state um, uh, granting funds so that mosquito repellent was mm -hmm. free to pregnant women is a step in the right direction so that mm -hmm. the cost of repellent doesn't become a barrier. Mm -hmm. And again, that supplements some of the work that we were doing as well. Um, I think we're just branching in to talking to men who may travel to high-risk areas and encouraging them to have uh, barrier-protected sex or to abstain mm -hmm. um, if their partner is contemplating pregnancy or is mm -hmm. pregnant. Um, I think there's a lot of work to do there. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that patients are receptive when we give them the information. But I don't think we can over-communicate how important it is for them to um, take these precautions. Sure. And at a certain level, we're talking about what I consider to be one of the most difficult things in the world, mm -hmm. and that's to, to, to a call to action, to go from the difference between people knowing or having heard something about Zika to actually taking steps to protect themselves. Um, before I was commissioner, I was the chief medical officer for an 11 hospital system, and my job was basically to convince doctors to change their behavior. Uh, that was not an easy thing to do. Um, and so that, that, that's just kind of a general thing. And, and people have mentioned some other aspects too. There's no doubt that we know on a public health level that there are uh, systematic health disparities um, throughout the entire United States and certainly here in Texas. And a problem like this really tends to only kind of accentuate those disparities. And you've heard, right, Zika described as sort of a disease that predominantly afflicts people of lower income, right, who maybe have the standing water that's an issue, don't have the longer clothes. Um, is there a concern that this is going to be a greater problem in areas like what you described, Representative Collier, the more underserved ones where access to care is already a question and then you don't necessarily have the resources in place to effectively counter the virus? I do think it's going to be a problem because as we, uh, Dr. Heller said and I were talking earlier about um, an area in McAllen where there's a crossover from Mexico and into McAllen. So we don't have any authority to tell the Mexican government to test their, their uh, citizens or to provide any type of mosquito repellent to their citizens. So I think that that's gonna be a problem we, because of the crossover that we're having in those, and they're legal crossovers. A lot of them are legal crossovers, people going to school here in the United States, but they just lived in, live in Mexico. And so that's gonna be, pose a problem because we cannot eradicate 
uh, Zika virus in Mexico if they're not doing anything to help you know, their country. Um, so that is going to be a problem. We don't see it yet, um, but I anticipate that that's going to be an issue that we need to address in the upcoming uh, session with the help of the medical professionals that can help uh, guide us with some best policy practices that we can do to uh, combat that area. But I, will wanna, I do want to say that one thing that took the state a little bit too long was to give those mosquito pellets out freely. Uh, it took a while because at first they were requiring a prescription. Right. And I was very disappointed with that. And so that's something that we had to work on for patients, uh, for individuals who are Medicaid recipients, they had to get a prescription first. And so now it's at the point where they do not have to have a prescription. And so, but it took a while to get that. And so we, cannot, we can no longer afford to do any type of delay in, in type of uh, preventive care. And we have to be on target at every moment. So, you know, we're going to be looking for those, mm -hmm. uh, you know, delays. If there's a delay, I need to be notified by the medical professionals and by the, the people who are issuing it so that way we can get it on track. If, if I might, I'd like to sound a little bit of a counter note in the sense that if we look at the one place already in the continental United States where we have local vector transmission, and that was in Miami, and the place that it, it really was first identified was actually in a very... Um, uh, I, I don't know if it's necessarily, uh, well, it, it's a, it's a mixed-use area. It has um, single-family dwellings. It has apartment buildings. It has lots of restaurants. It has offices. Mm -hmm. it, it, was, uh, it was not, by any means, uh, the very lower yeah. end of the socioeconomic scale. So that means that we have to be vigilant, really, across all of our communities. Right, and I, I kind of want to echo that as well. I mean, um, obviously, the lower income um, socioeconomic stratus in proximity to conditions which promote pr mosquito breeding. So yes, that, that argument is valid. But um, you know, in the in the United States, it's probably going to be more of a bimodal distribution mm -hmm. where you have people that you know travel for vacation and leisure, and that's what we're seeing in our practice as well. And you know, again, once it becomes local, it's going to affect all stratas of of um, you know socioeconomics. So. Um, it's not just limited to one. Yes, they're at high risk, of course, for all of these reasons we're discussing. Um, but, but at, you know, and, and this is um, backed by evidence as well from, from Rio de Janeiro that uh, it affected all socioeconomic strata. And if you think of a, a breeding ground for the Aedes aegypti mosquito in particular, which is the primary vector, um, think of the dog dish that's in your backyard. Mm -hmm. Think of the, the little bit of standing water that you've got in the gutter around your house. That is their preferred uh, area to breed in. Right. They like still, small, relatively small, still water, um, relatively clean water. And the very important thing about this particular mosquito is it exclusively feeds on human beings and non-human primates. So if you have pet monkeys, I guess that's an extra concern. But otherwise, generally, it's exclusively human beings. And they, it only flies about 150 yards in its entire lifetime. Mm -hmm. So it is right in and around areas where, where, of human habitation. And so again, it, it, when you think of bodies of water, don't think of lakes and rivers. Mm -hmm. Um, think of your dog dish and uh, the cap full of water that might be sitting outside of your front door. One of the things that we've seen in Houston is that in some of those areas that are low resource, there'll be dumping grounds where tires and trash are, are collecting. And so Mayor Turner um, in Houston has mobilized funds to be able to clean up some of those areas. And I think that that, in addition to individual efforts right outside of your home, um, are good ways to begin to address this. 
So I do have to ask, because we've talked a few times now about mosquito repellent being covered by Medicaid. Um, obviously, this is a big step. Texas has a very large uninsured rate. Um, I think the latest census figures are 4.6 million people don't have any kind of coverage. To what extent does the question of Zika and leveraging Medicaid as a tool to combat it raise the specter of expanding Medicaid? Is that on the table? Should that be discussed? Um, how does that fit into this question? I'm sorry, I was about to laugh because there's just no way that the way the climate is in Texas, who the people are in office are gonna expand <laughs> Medicaid. The way, mm -hmm. We just don't have the votes and we need it. Uh, definitely would help. Uh, you know, this is another argument as to why we need to expand Medicaid, uh, but we just don't have the climate right here. We don't have the right people in office that would, would support that. Um, you know, some people put numbers, they think that um, the cost, and they, they have it all wrong, the cost of expanding Medicaid just saves dollars. I mean, you can look at the two doctors here shaking their head, yes, yes, <laughs> they understand that, uh, but certain other politicians don't, so. We absolutely support uh, the expansion of Medicaid as well. I mean, when we see women and we're counseling them when they're pregnant, mm -hmm. there were a lot of years before they were pregnant that they could have been covered and engaging in preventive primary health care where education could have been given. But at the time that we're seeing them, when they're covered by Medicaid um, or CHIP perinatal, it's at the point where they're already pregnant and maybe weren't aware of their risk of, of getting Zika. Uh, not to mention a number of other conditions that could affect their pregnancy. But we could use the 1115 waiver if we can get it extended. It's only um, 1115 waiver allows um, hospitals and, and uh, other medical professionals to create programs that would uh, help, you know, improve the quality of life for people in the community. Uh, of course, that requires these medical medical professionals and hospitals to put the money up front, but then they get reimbursed if they can prove that these programs help them. Uh, of course, the 1115 waiver program was supposed to be a uh, substitute to uh, Medicaid expansion, but as we can see, it hasn't, uh, it's helping, it has, you know, helped a lot of people, but we just need more of them. Uh, and so, you know, that's one way we can help with the, uh, uh, to stop the spread of Zika is with the 1115 waiver program. Is that something you see happening down the line, or? I have not seen it happen mm -hmm. just yet. I think that they're all, it's the money's, they're shouldering it themselves right now. Mm -hmm. um, I, that's what my understanding is that these hospitals are, and, and the um, county hospitals are, are paying for these pro programs themselves. Now, one thing I do want to ask Dr. Hellerstedt is, uh, California has a, a sterile mosquito program where they're putting out male sterile mosquitoes to eradicate the Zika virus. Is that something that you think that could happen here in Texas? Is it needed now? Um, because apparently it's proven to lower the um, number of the uh, females who go out and bite people, because apparently the males do not bite. Yes, I've heard of that. It, it's part of a number of, if you will, novel technologies that are kind of being tested out there. Uh -huh. um, and um, I don't know that it is proven to be, in, in, in essence, to be cost effective. I think if it was proven to be cost effective, it's absolutely one of the things that we could adopt but what in, in previous research that was done, not related to the, um, uh, those particularly genetically modified mosquitoes, if you will, in other uh, uh, research that has been done, even when you lowered the population of mosquito by 90%, you didn't see a significant change in disease transmission. So they're extremely, um, it's an extremely difficult nut to crack and uh, we don't have uh, we, we don't have a uh, a complete solution. Again, that's why I emphasize. Uh, I, I should mention 
texaszika.org, www.texaszika.org. It's our website. Please go there. We've got links to all the stuff at the CDC. We have all manner of information there that's very useful for journalists, for the general public, for pregnant women, and for professionals. And it really lays out a lot of um, a lot of that information and lays out the different, if you will, tools that we have to combat Zika. So none of the tools by themselves is going to be 100% perfect. It's not all, there's no one thing that we can do that will get rid of the problem. So we have to use all of the tools. And, and that's where, again, it's the call to action. If somebody can please pick the tool they like and start using it, uh, I think we'd be very far ahead. Are there any, like, sort of unusual strategies that Texas might adopt similar to these weird mosquito genetic breedings or more of a focus on prevention, awareness? <coughs> well, in, again, in general, I mean, uh, public health is a science. Sure. And so we would need to have an evidence-based reason to adopt a particular strategy. Mm -hmm. And um, again, to the best of my knowledge, the evidence isn't, isn't there to say, uh, the, if, you, if you invest in this resource, you'll have a superior outcome. Mm -hmm. The other I mean, access question that is really hard to ignore beyond Medicaid is the regularity of women's access to contraception in Texas. And that's something that you hear nationally. Um, that Texas has made all these strides with how it's building the women's health program, but anecdotally, many are saying, you know, without Planned Parenthood in the mix, it's really hard to have regular access to contraception. To what extent does that history and relationship with Planned Parenthood affect what is being done around Zika and what kind of problem it might raise? Well, well, without Planned Parenthood and organizations like Planned Parenthood, it limits the access that someone has to quality health care, especially in the rural areas. You know, sometimes Planned Parenthood was the only access that somebody had to mm -hmm. quality health care. And so we've got to be careful. Uh, you know, luckily that Dr. Barnes has a clinic that, that she runs, and that's something that can be available, but that's in Harris County, so that doesn't help somebody um, in Harlingen. So uh, we definitely need to make sure that, you know, the women who are... Um, you know, in the rural areas or who don't have access to care, that they, they get into a medical professional uh, so they can get some treatment. How do you do that, though? Well, Texas has their own program. It's the Women's Health Program that Texas has. Um, I'm not too satisfied with that, but they've improved it over the last time. But the program, um, you know, is just meant with diagnosing, not treatment. So that, that's one of the things that we need to fix with that program. Um, I can go in and find out I have diabetes, but i got to go somewhere else to get treated for it. Uh, same thing with Zika. I can find out I have Zika, but then I have to go somewhere else to get the care. So we have to fix that program. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it, there's, there's, there's a gap in that treatment you know, program, and we have to do better for next uh, session. We're going to come back and look at that. Dr. Barnes, the patients you see, does that something that comes up? Or? So as a federally qualified health center, we're going to see anyone who walks in the door, regardless of their ability to pay. Um, so we benefit from the Healthy Texas Women's Program in terms of dollars for family planning and, and any care around family planning. Um, but sort of in the back office, we have to switch sort of to self-pay if the woman is there for a separate issue. Right. So it's complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are certain criteria we have to meet in order to justify that the visit was a Healthy Texas Women's visit, but we are committed to a woman throughout her life course, no matter what comes up, mm -hmm. um, and so we will continue to see her. But on the backside, we do have to figure out 
the payment piece. And the patient will have to be aware that sliding scale may apply to one visit, whereas there's coverage for another visit. Does that sort of constrain what you're capable of doing, though, to an extent? Or? I, you know, we provide quality care. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't, we don't change our care based on a, on a patient's ability to, to pay or how she might be funded. Um, so we're going to provide high-quality care regardless. But luckily, Dr. Barnes is able to do that. But there's other professionals who are not able to do that. They cannot afford uh, to offer that type of care because, for one, uh, their, their practice you know, relies on the income, you know, that money that comes in. So right. they just won't see those patients. And so that was one of the problems we had with that program is that getting the number of doctors to sign up. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I noticed is that there's a lot of... Um, RNs or um, nurse, practitioners. nurse practitioners that are on the program, they expanded that uh, as a provider, not saying that they're not you know, qualified providers, but a lot of those are the ones that are stepping up to fill that gap for the medical uh, providers, uh, medical doctors and DOs. So, mm -hmm. Dr. Heller said, is this something that the state is also looking into, sort of expanding access to preventive care for women's health in rural areas and contraception in particular? Or? Uh, again, I, I'm not an expert in the mm -hmm. in the women's health program, at uh, Healthy Texas Women's Program. Uh, it's not administered by the mm -hmm. Texas Department of State Health Services. I do know that one of the innovations that they made is that a woman who goes off of Medicaid mm -hmm. at the end of her uh, eligibility for her pregnancy is automatically enrolled yeah. in this new program, which it sounds like kind of a small and very logical thing to do, but it's actually a very big and mm -hmm. very logical thing to do. So I, I think that's a big advance, and I hope that that produces better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And one thing that uh, I talked to Dr. Hiller said about was the contraception. The CDC said issue, you, know, you can issue um, mosquito repellent and encourage contraception. And I wondered why there were no big signs out that said, we've got free condoms, sir. You can come in and get your birth control. Uh, or, or to the mail, you know, we have free condoms for you. But uh, Dr. Heller said, pointed out that that's already a, a service, but I wouldn't mind seeing some education about that um, because that is one of the things the CDC said that we can do as a part of educating people about preventing the transmission of Zika is to encourage the use of contraception. And if that's the case, then we need to make sure that everyone knows that Medicaid covers the, the contraceptives, including condoms. Mm -hmm. Do patients know that usually, or...? I mean, maybe Dr. Barnes, you're a person asked that. I mean, when patients walk in the door, do they know that their contraception's covered, or? Uh, you know, I think in general, they do. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, when the patient comes in, if family planning is particularly on their mind. Mm -hmm. So there's some element of it's routine care, and so the provider would bring that up in the mm -hmm. course of care. Um, but I think more and more of the patients who come to us recognize that contraception is something that they're entitled to and, and can get covered mm -hmm. um, as a part of their primary care. So before we turn to audience questions, um, oh, sorry, you were going to say that? No, I was just, I agree. <laughs> um, before we go to the audience, the thing that's been fascinating to me and I think would be a fun way to sort of wrap up this part of the conversation is around the country, and you and I have talked about this, Dr. Rack, a few times, sort of how the conversation about Zika has brought to the forefront other concerns about general access to preventive medicine, right? You know, when we hear that children may be at risk for longer, um, and the question of how often they get well baby visits, um, mm -hmm. or mothers getting regular prenatal care. Um, in Texas, to what extent is the issue of Zika highlighting questions of access? Um, what are some of the themes maybe at surfacing that have been in the back of people's minds before, but hadn't really been considered until now? Well, I think it's, it's definitely bringing that all to the forefront as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
Um, the more we know about Zika, we know that no trimester of pregnancy is, is safe, right? I mean, uh, even if you get infected in the third trimester, you still have effects, you know, within the first year of life, and we've seen that. So um, that is a very important aspect that is currently now being addressed, um, um, is long-term follow-up for the, for the infants, and long-term follow-up for everyone. I mean, there's just so much we don't know about Zika. Um, we're seeing more and more reports of Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, you know, acute myelitis, and, you know, the question is, what about long-term in the future, beyond, you know, the first immediate few years after the infection? These are all questions that, you know, we need to find an answer to, and it is going to affect, um, I guess, access and, and follow-up. And I think that the um, access question is also relevant to preconception mm -hmm. counseling um, so that women can be prepared um, if they're considering pregnancy as well. I think that there are some interesting attempts at the local level to, to mm -hmm. figure out how to improve access and connect patients to care. Um, Legacy and uh, a hospital, Methodist Hospital in, uh, in Baytown. Um, in Houston are trying to partner to identify low acuity patients in the emergency room and connect them to primary care. So we're working creatively to try to figure out how to connect people to care so that they can engage in that long-term preventive um, health care process. And one of the things that state, the state is doing, and I'm, I'm really proud about this was, is that they're testing the blood of donors, people who are donating blood. So now they're doing that. Uh, we were able to catch a case in Austin. Somebody had the Zika virus. Would probably didn't even, wouldn't even know that they had it, but they were donating blood. So now Texas is testing the donor blood, and so that's another way that we can, you know, try to combat, uh, you know, the spread of the virus. Although the FDA requires screening of donor blood at this point, doesn't it? It does require. In fact, only 11 states were required to do that, and Texas is one of them. Um, we're, we, have, we represent about six percent of the population of the United States that have uh, Zika virus. Uh, you know, transmission. Yeah, I think that's a recent change, just to mm -hmm. refer to what yeah. previously it was mm -hmm. just screening the travel history of the mm -hmm. patient. So, yeah, now, this is a recent change. This is change. new. Mm -hmm. and, and, it's, and it's really a great thing in the sense that um, basically it's under a protocol with a new type of testing that's being developed mm -hmm. uh, by a private company, and it's under protocol with the FDA. And essentially what it amounts to then is, is a kind of active sentinel surveillance of the general population that we didn't really have available before because lots, again, you know, people would screen out by history for Zika and for many other things, but now in addition, once they take the blood, they test it for other diseases that may not have been screenable, if you will, by history, but one of those things now is the Zika virus. So that's going to give us, if you will, a much larger denominator mm -hmm. in terms of the general surveillance of the population for the emergence of local transmission. Mm -hmm. Might that be helpful in terms of, I guess, assessing other sort of public health concerns beyond Zika or? Well, this, this particular test is specific mm -hmm. to Zika. So basically, um, I'm, I'm sure there's technology to look for other things mm -hmm. uh, in the future, but this is one that's pressing and there was a need, and mm -hmm. so that's what's come forward. But you're right, it could you know, provide more information about how the, how the condition is transmitted mm -hmm. or, or you know, what happens, because maybe that person didn't have a travel-related case, but luckily here in Texas, we do not have any uh, reported incidences of mosquito-borne transmission. It's mostly travel. They're all travel-related cases. And, and again, if I can, uh, www.texaszika.org, on it, we have our criteria for accepting uh, specimens for testing. Mm -hmm. 
the, the ones that are really kind of spelled out in detail are related to pregnancy and travel. Mm -hmm. However, we will, uh, if, if an individual provider says, hey, this person didn't travel, but they have three out of the four big symptoms of Zika, they can call their local health department and have a conversation. And if that is a really a suspicious case, we will now accept for testing non-travel related uh, specimens. One of the one of the difficulties, and this is obviously my opinion, but um, in screening for Zika or screening for any any um, disease in the population, is that eighty percent of patients with Zika are going to be asymptomatic. Right. So you you know in pregnancy we can circumvent that because the recommendations currently are to screen all pregnant women, and if they have any sort of epidemiologic link, either because they've traveled to a country with active Zika infection or their partner has traveled to a country with active Zika infection, then they qualify for testing. But in the non-pregnant patient population, that's not necessarily the case. So I think there's uh, an, an area for, um, I guess, improvement or sort of further investigation in terms of combating and, and screening the population. But just to keep in mind, 80% of patients with Zika will not display these classic symptoms. And, and there definitely is um, a, a, one of the things I worry the most about is if we have local transmission to be able to match the demand for testing mm -hmm. with the capacity mm -hmm. to do testing because I, I do not want women making decisions about their pregnancy based on fear. Would that and, require and the addition of more resources? Um, it, again, it would depend on how big the area was mm -hmm. and how many women you had to have a test because there's two basic types of testing for, for Zika. One is based on the genetic material mm -hmm. itself and discovering that. But that's really only useful in a fairly early period in the yeah. disease. And then the other type of testing is based on the, the patient's, the person's immune response mm -hmm. to having had, uh, to, to have the virus and develop an immune response. And those tests are just inherently more difficult to scale up. Mm -hmm. um, and um, in the case of the genetic-based one, if it's positive, you're done. You've proven that they have Zika. In the, in the case of the uh, antibody or serology or immune test, um, if it's negative, you're done. But interestingly enough, that immune test cross-reacts with several other rather common um, uh, mosquito-borne viruses. So particularly if we see folks who've traveled or spent an extensive amount of time in other countries where there is not only Zika, but dengue and chikungunya and other diseases, their test will come back uh, their antibody tests will come back positive, and, but then that has to go on to a very laborious and time-consuming test called a plaque reduction neutralization test that currently, as far as I know, is only done at the CDC and takes inherently at least about 10 days to run. Yeah. So uh, there are technical aspects of the laboratory capacity that are uh, just inherent constraints. So with that... Um... We've spent about 40 minutes here having this conversation, but it would be great to hear from all of you as well. If you have questions, uh, there's a microphone over there and over there. Um, and. Hi, my name is mm -hmm. Robin. Uh, and uh, first of all, thank you to, to everybody who's on the panel. This is a really uh, informative uh, session, and it's nice to see the collaborative nature of the, of the comments and interaction. Um, I heard a news conference in the last couple of weeks that described Zika as being uh, one of the most dangerous 
potentially dangerous sexually transmitted diseases in the world, uh, not, not including you know, HIV, AIDS. And I started wondering, you know, so right now it's seen as mosquito-borne, I mean, in the public perception, mosquito-borne, mm -hmm. and that maybe children are the most vulnerable, pregnant women and children are the most vulnerable. What do you think, I mean, first of all, do you agree that it has the potential to be, because I'm, I'm not a doctor, I'm you know, just asking you guys, do you agree that it has the potential to be an extremely dangerous, dangerous sexually transmitted disease? And then if it does, do you think that changes the conversation about how we respond to Zika as a public health threat? That's a good question. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that. Um, I do think it's a dangerous disease and it has the potential to spread rapidly, not only because it can fly with the mosquito, but it can be transmitted sexually. And uh, you know, there's still a lot we don't know about Zika. It's, I've been isolated in other, other body cavities um, and fluids, so there's that potential. Um, and the fetal effects that we see as well as the long-term neurological effects that we're seeing is scary, okay? Um, there's a lot we don't know and there's a lot we need to figure out very quickly. But it's a containable disease, so you compared it to HIV. The one thing that I would say that um, is more promising than HIV is that there's vaccine development underway. We think there's lifelong immunity that's been shown in monkey studies. Mm -hmm. So meaning that if you get it once and you form an um, IgG antibody response, we think that um, confers lifelong immunity to it. So it's able to be contained from what we think. I don't know if Dr. Heller said wants to add, add into that. So in my opinion, that needs to be one of the forefronts in terms of funding and research going forward. Um, similar to the rubella epidemic back in, I guess, the late 70s. but. Um, um, it's been compared to that as well. I, I agree completely. I think it's a great question, and I think the fact that um, we now know that sexual transmission is, is possible and uh, potentially a prominent part of uh, the way it would play out in a place like the continental United States where you're still getting a lot of travel imported cases, that's, that's going to continue because the Zika is going to be active in the countries where it's active now and people are gonna to continue to come back and forth from that. So that's the, the, those travel-related cases of people who have active infection, in other words, are actively viremic, that input is gonna be a constant kind of input. Mm -hmm. And so, and then in addition to that, that aspect of, you know, they may have sexual partners. We know that it can spread from male to female, female to male, and male to male. So, um, yes, I think it's an excellent question. I think what we'll have to see is, what is, what is the evidence, what's the data showing us as time goes on and we study these cases epidemiologically. But I think part of also what you're seeing because of that unknown science is you're seeing some very conservative recommendations coming from the CDC in, in terms of uh, long-term contraception, uh, uh, thinking about contraception, um, uh, abstinence or the use of barrier type methodology uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, in the case of uh, travel. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the panel. It's been an interesting discussion. Uh, my question was for you, Commissioner and um, Representative Collier. What do you need the legislature to do? Um, what types of bills do you hope that they pursue uh, when they convene in January? Well, I'm hoping we don't have to make any legislation, uh, legislative changes. I'm hoping that they would take proactive, be proactive and accept the recommendations from the medical professionals to implement programs. But if there's something that is hindering them, I, would, uh, I know that Dr. Heller said, would let us know 
what type of legislative changes we need to make in order to uh, you know, pr protect the public health. Yes, and as you may know, as, as commissioner, um, I'm a public servant. I cannot advocate for or against any particular legislation. Um, yeah, and that's out of, uh, that, that's the way our system works. It, uh, our elected officials are the ones who get to make those policy decisions. Can they come to us and ask for advice? Absolutely, they can come to us and ask for professional advice and insight. And so there's, I think there's a number of uh, options that are out there. Uh, I'm particularly interested to see uh, how the blood bank um, testing works and how effective that is as an active sentinel surveillance system for this particular disease and might it have a applicability beyond that. You know, I think the thing that, you know, one thing we haven't touched on is this is Zika season number one for the continental United States. Mm -hmm. It will by no means be the last. Uh, and uh, there, just as there was West Nile, then there was Ebola, and now there's Zika, there will be a follow-on of probably another mosquito vector-borne uh, disease that will emerge that we're not really ex expecting. I'm no viro virologist, but I've been on panel with people who are and who knew about Zika, and they said it was always a footnote on their, uh, on their lectures. Oh, yeah, there's this other one. You know, let me give you the complete list because I know all the list. And here's Zika. It's down at the bottom, but you don't need to worry about it because basically people get it and they get over it and it's harmless. Well, clearly that flipped itself completely on its head, and, and we're in a, in a different situation, which reminds me, one of the things I want to emphasize is we don't expect Zika to get anywhere near the level in the continental United States that it has in Puerto Rico or South or Central America for a number of reasons. And one of the biggest is we're forewarned and we can, we can do something about it. Those countries like Brazil really didn't know it was there until they saw, if you will, the signal of multiple increased mm -hmm. birth defects and, and, and microcephaly and then traced it back to Zika. So that's one of the things that's a great advantage for us. We're forewarned. My, my point again, it's a call to action. It, we know it's out there. People can take steps on their own to protect themselves and their own family. And by doing that, they are actually protecting their community as well. Then let me clarify that because he said something earlier that we would go to him. So if that's the case, then I would certainly reach out to see if there are any other steps that we need to take to protect the public health. And I would stay in touch with our medical professionals who are ground zero, uh, you know, interacting with the public about uh, how, the, uh, how the virus is transmitted and so forth. So if there is legislation that needs to be uh, created, uh, we definitely would take action on that. And, and that's a bipartisan issue. That's, I mean, it doesn't matter what political issue party you're affiliated with. That's gonna be something that will, you know, will have to happen. Not to co-opt that question, but I am wondering, Dr. Barnes, Dr. Rack, are there things that, as medical professionals, you would then say to Representative Collier or someone else in the ledge that should be considered? Uh, can you say that? I, I, didn't I was wondering all of it. if Dr. Or Dr. Barnes, Dr. Rack, you are both medical professionals, the kinds with whom Representative Collier would likely be consulting, asking for advice. So what would you recommend to the legislature? I think just the, the similar things that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. uh, improving the access to care, especially right. before pregnancy, preventative measures. I mean, you know, access to contraception, uh, family planning, that's a huge part of this. It really right. is. Um, uh, so, you know, that, that also needs to be a priority as well. I would agree with mm -hmm. Dr. Rack. Hi, um, my name is Sadie Hernandez, and I actually work at Planned Parenthood Texas Votes. And so 
Like, y'all keep talking about the access to contraception, but another, like, larger issue around this is, like, talking about abortion and abortion access. And I know that the Texas Ledge is already thinking about, like, trying to co-opt the Zika issue to defund Planned Parenthood in this next session. And I wanted to know your thoughts and whether or not you think that's a derailment from the issue of, like, um, fixing this problem or if you think that talking about abortion and defunding Planned Parenthood is, you know, one of the solutions. I'm, I'm, I may not understand your question, so can you? Um, so the Texas legislature is already drafting bills so that way they could use the Zika issue to defund Planned Parenthood here in Texas. And I wanted to know if you thought that that issue was, a, like focusing it on Planned Parenthood and defunding it was a derailment of the actual seriousness of this issue, or if you think that talking about abortion and defunding Planned Parenthood is a step in the right direction. Oh, I'm opposed to defunding Planned Parenthood. I think that, uh, you know, they always use smoke screens. They use something as a, a, you know, a rally to get at Planned Parenthood and organizations that provide uh, health care other than, you know, Planned Parenthood does provide abortions, but that, that's not all that they do. And so they do have clinics and areas that really need to have uh, people that maybe their only access to care. Uh, so I could see this. I hadn't seen any bills that were, uh, or heard about any bills that were uh, targeting, but as you, as your worker with uh, Planned Parenthood, you would know. Uh, but we definitely would be looking for uh, ways to prevent any type of additional defunding of Planned Parenthood. We've had too many clinics shut down already as it is. And of course, I could see this being used as a, uh, you know, baton to say, this is why we don't need any more uh, funding to Planned Parenthood. Uh, but certainly, I welcome you to share that with my office so we can talk about that. Hi there, Kimmy Jeffrey with Texas Women's um, Health. Well, what am I now? Women's Health and Family Planning <laughs> Association of Texas. Um, I am very encouraged to hear contraception come up from everyone on the panel today, as well as those folks asking these questions. Um, I wanted to know, Dr. Hellestat, will someone be attending the CDC meeting on increasing access to contraception next week on behalf of the state? Yes. Okay, great. And then also, many of the um, communications pieces on TexasZika.org are focused on mosquitoes. There's a few mentions of condoms, barrier methods, especially around pregnant women. Um, I'm just wondering if um, you're open to creating some contraceptive pieces for TexasZika.org. I will take that under consideration. Great. Hi, my name's Jill Fleurier. I'm a medical anthropology professor at UTSA, and my work is in the borderlands of US-Mexico border, specifically the Rio Grande Valley. And I was speaking to a virologist there at UTRGV, and he was talking about um, the potential interaction between someone who is seropositive for dengue and then exposed to Zika or vice versa. And so I was wondering if you could update us, that was about a month ago, where we are in terms of understanding that. And two, if indeed there is a negative interaction, um, are there different public health approaches that need to be taken? Do there simply need to be more resources in place in those like the Valley where dengue seropositivity is so much higher than the rest of the state? I can take the diagnostic, diagnostic question because I deal with, deal with this on a daily basis. Um, the, the testing and diagnosis for Zika is somewhat complicated. Um, uh, as discussed earlier, there's, there's two different ways that we can test for Zika. One is called a polymerase chain reaction. It actually detects the RNA from the Zika in the, the body fluid that you tested. And right now, we can test it in, in serum, we can test it in urine, and we can test it in amniotic fluid. Other body, uh, other body fluids are, are experimental. So those are the three main, main um, uh, 
body fluids that we can test it on. The caveat is that the patient has to be viremic. So we have to catch that patient, patient during the one to two weeks on average that they're actively viremic. And if you remember me saying, 80% of patients with Zika are asymptomatic. So it's very difficult. Um, and in fact, I, in my clinic, we have not had any actually positive PCR patients. So the opposite, the, the alternative is to, to detect a serologic response um, to the virus, which basically means that you've had exposure in the past, and depending on what serologic test you send, will give you an idea in terms of timing. And currently, what's available is an IgM. And if you remember from your science class, that's the initial acute convalescent um, um, response that, that you form. It usually wanes, and then you, de you de develop an IgG, which is confers lifelong immunity, similar to how vaccines work. But all we have right now is an IgM available. So the majority of patients that have been tested during pregnancy in the United States are asymptomatic. So we don't know at what point they were infected, so they all qualify for serology testing. Problem with serology testing, as we alluded to earlier, is that there's high cross-reactivity between other flaviviruses, particularly dengue, chikungunya, West Nile, um, yellow fever, any of those. Um, in our patient population that we see in Houston, and especially uh, in South Texas, a lot of these patients have either previously immigrated and lived in, in countries in which dengue is prevalent, it's endemic, so they've had it as a child, um, or other um, uh, reasons as to why they would have been infected. So um, it, there's, a, there's a lot of false positives, and I would say the majority of cases that we get are false positives. And as you can imagine from a, a, a clinician standpoint, it's very difficult to counsel a patient on what that means, because all they hear is, I'm positive for Zika. Well, that's not necessarily true. Then you have to walk it through, and then, then, then you, know, you have to sort of try and um, you know, answer their questions about what does this mean for my baby? We don't know what this means for your baby. We don't even know what the percentage or attack rate is. If you have a positive PCR, which is the definitive test of Zika, we can't even give you a percentage to say, well, this is your chance that the baby's going to be infected. And does infected actually mean the baby's going to be affected? So those are very important questions that we don't have um, to give our patients that need to be answered very quickly. Um, so I guess to make a summary, a long summary I mean, of, of, of that is that the, the testing is very complicated. There's very high false positive rates. I mean, it's a very difficult conversation. I will say in my practice, um, there's a much higher amniocentesis uptake, which has been an interesting observation. Um, uh, traditionally, in my uh, patient population, you know, even for genetic amniocentesis, they usually don't um, pursue forward. You know, they wait for postnatal diagnosis. Um, but I've noticed that if you mention the word Zika, um, they will definitely get an amniocentesis um, for definitive diagnosis, um, regardless of the gestation. So uh, just, it's a somewhat of a, semi-pandemonium that's occurring. There was another part to that question, but I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's called the ori original antigenic sin. That's also a phenomenon that, that uh, has been observed. So the, the, the serologic response to Zika, or if you've had previous dengue or some other flavivirus and um, you get um, Zika, there's a, um, a more robust response. I think that's what you're referring to. I mean, I, I think just 
to continue working forward on expanding testing options, better detection of, of um, the disease. And see, by listening to the medical professionals, we can come up with best practices on how to uh, address the Zika virus and how it impacts our community. And so programs like this helps us to do that. And, and Dr. Hellerstedt said that he has people going out to other, other conferences. Uh, he's been involved in conferences, and so he's learning uh, about the, uh, you know, the prevention and, and steps to treat. So, you know, it's an ongoing, it's so, you know, new and, and something that we haven't had to deal with before. So it's an ongoing process, but I feel confident that Texas is on top of things right now uh, as of today. On that note, if we have no more questions to the audience, I think that wraps up our panel. Thank all of you so much. This has been great.